sharing this sermon from the living room. Um, again, for the recording, my name is Jonah, they, them, theirs. I'm one of the pastors here at Zao, and um, we are doing Tuesday of Holy Week, where Jesus is in the temple. So we've been in uh, we've been in Jerusalem already as Jesus entered in on Sunday, um, challenging Rome, challenging the military authority with the people. And so it's the people versus the empire as it's set up on Sunday. And Jesus holds this tension of this epic confrontation and also this personal grief, um, this grief that Jesus holds weeping over Jerusalem, understanding that um, that there is immense loss and uh, an injustice happening here. And so there is this tension of confronting empire with power and vigor and joy and celebration and shouting and palms and also holding the weight of grief. And that's Sunday. And so on Monday, we get into the temple. And this is where Jesus is flipping over tables and confronting the temple system and the system of temple sacrifice. If you'd like to hear more detail on that, John gave a great sermon about that last week. And that you can find on the podcast. Um, But now we have Tuesday. So Jesus has already done this triumphal entry. And he's already um, come and flipped over the tables. So now what? They haven't arrested him because they're afraid of the crowds, the crowds being the people. And as our scriptures often refer to the people, it means poor folks, poor folks from rural areas in the countryside that stormed into the um, into the capital with Jesus on this holy week to celebrate a history of liberation from persecution, from occupation um, in Egypt. And so the Jewish people who are so thrilled to celebrate this liberation in their history are entering into their holy city, which is Jerusalem, which is occupied by Rome. And so there's a lot of tension in the air already. And on Tuesday, we see that Jesus has moved from, on Sunday, confronting um, Rome and the military and this, this idea of empire versus people, through Monday, where Jesus is uh, setting up this, up this conflict, the people versus the temple system and the exploitative religious authorities who are using um, holiness and demands of holiness to exploit people. And then we move into Tuesday, where we get into these deep theological debates. And this is really beautiful. The the text on Tuesday is one of the longest. There's 115 or so verses, I believe, in Mark dedicated to Tuesday alone. That's more than double any other day um, this week. And so we have just story after story of these um, debates between Jesus and the temple authority. And what we see unfold is Jesus dramatically challenging the way that the scriptures and the tradition are being interpreted by the authorities and reclaiming a liberationist Jewish faith to say, oh no, no, just because you have co-opted this for your empire doesn't mean that you actually have the final say on what these scriptures mean or on what God's will is for us. Just because you're wearing the hat or the robe, just because you have the keys to the temple doesn't mean that you're speaking in the truth of God. Just because you know the verses doesn't mean you understand the verses. And so I am here to school y'all and let you know the liberation truth of the gospel of God the good news for all people, the good news for the people who are not the authorities, by the way, but the people are the crowd behind me, says Jesus. And so all day you get these incredible debates. We're going to go through a couple of them, but we don't even have the time to go through all of them, which is so cool. Um, Someday I have fantasies about doing an entire series just on Temple Tuesday and calling it Temple Tantrums, but uh, (laughs) we'll get there. For today, we just have one day to go through this. 
So uh, these are the characters that are in this epic conflict today on Tuesday. You've got Jesus, who is on his third day of demonstrating, and you've got the crowd, the peasant class, in to celebrate Passover with him. On the other side of the conflict, uh, it's phrased in scriptures often as the chief priests, elders, and scribes. So who are they? The chief priests and elders are, uh, according to Borg and Crossan in their book, The Last Week, which is informing a lot of the work that we're doing here, um, they are, quote, the top of the local system of collaboration and domination. So I want to unpack that a little bit. Collaboration, the system of collaboration means the religious, the local religious authorities' collaboration with Rome. Rome is the occupying force here. Rome has come in to oppress the Jewish people, to take their land, to control them, to tax them, to exploit them. And this, the collaborator class, is the uh, Jewish religious authorities who have chosen to align themselves with Rome against the rest of the Jewish people. And they would never have interpreted it as against. They are part of the status quo. They are working with the occupiers, uh, and they need to have a mutually beneficial arrangement in order to hold that, uh, hold that city captive and hold that people captive. And, to, and for those um, chief priests and elders, they need to please Rome in order to keep their positions of authority. And so they are the ones that have been collaborating with Rome. And so when we say collaboration, that's what we mean. Domination system is the other term here, if they are the top of the local system of collaboration and, and domination. We have to unpack domination, right? Domination and the domination system is the structures by which everything is kept in place where some are on the top and most are on the bottom. And these are, domination systems are um, nearly universal to human history. It's what the gospel preaches against. It's the thing that we are trying to undo in order that we all might be in kingdom relationship together, a different kind of world, an anti-empire led by God for the people of God. And so this domination system, the way of the world, is where Rome is on top, we've got the collaborators just under them, and everyone else is subject to it, and they are dominated, controlled. Those folks are in power, not for people, not with people, but over people. And so when these folks are challenging Jesus in the temple, and Jesus is coming into conflict with them, it is about the ideas that they are using to justify their collaboration and domination. Because the local religious authorities have been abusing Jewish scripture to justify their behavior, to justify the domination of Rome, and to justify the status quo. Do, does any of that sound familiar? Anybody feel like faith and religious tradition, and in particular in our country, Christian practice, has been co-opted by people in power to justify the way things are, to justify domination over others and domination in the world? This is something that we still deal with now. And so if we want to challenge those systems of control and domination and the folks who benefit from it, the collaborators, um, even the collaborator in our own heart, right? Some of us have a stake in the way things are. Any experience of privilege we have is bound up in things staying the way they are. And so if we want to challenge that in ourselves, if we want to challenge that in the world, if we want to challenge that with the people around us, we have to look very closely at how Jesus is challenging it on Temple Tuesday. And so uh, we've got the chief priests and elders. 
Now, under them are the scribes. The scribes are a literate class employed by the chief priests and, and, and elders. So they're the ones um, that, that aren't really running the show, but they have a stake in it. And there are also Sadducees in this story. They are aristocrats, sort of rich religious uh, elites. They have a different theology um, than Jesus and even the Pharisees, and that is evident, uh, is evidence rather, of, of their allegiance with the way things are. And so all of these folks that are challenging Jesus have a stake in things staying the way they are. Uh, some of them have some explicit control over the system that, it, that is there. So the first way that they try and challenge Jesus is they say, on whose authority are you even doing this? Like, who even made you Jesus? And so Jesus is uh, immediately put in this position to try and defend where he's speaking from in front of the crowd. Now, it says over and over again, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowd. And so they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to back him into a corner. And so Jesus is really tricky. We have this wonderful tradition in Christianity um, that interprets the cross as Christus Victor, um, where Jesus sort of cheats death and the devil. We see that tricky trickster God, Jesus, as um, kind of outwitting the evil of the world in this moment and throughout all of these conflicts, because Jesus says, uh, sort of turns it back on them. He says, oh, you want to know on whose authority I do this? Well, on whose authority was, uh, was John the Baptist baptizing folks? And, and so the, the authorities are now in this weird position where if they say, well, God, then they are, they're crediting Jesus and Jesus' followers and the followers of John the Baptist, who they also super don't like. Um, but if they say that, that it was false, that, G that John the Baptist didn't have authority, then the crowd around them is going to get real angry real fast. And so immediately the, uh, these authorities are put on the defensive and they just sort of get caught, caught up in this. And their actual answer in scripture is like, I don't know. And they just completely back down. And they're like, I, I don't know. They, they're trapped. They cannot give an answer. And so then they come at Jesus with something else. This is the taxes to Caesar argument. They say, hey, as a faithful Jewish person, should you, should we be paying taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is another trap because if they get Jesus to say, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then Rome, in this highly public event, Rome is going to have all the justification they need to come in and kill Jesus. But if Jesus says, pay taxes to Caesar then it's going to be really confusing for Jesus' followers because that's clearly not what Jesus believes. So they're trying to call Jesus out on his teachings in a way, in a moment that's very dangerous for him. And so, uh, so Jesus, again, is clever in this moment. He says, all right, well, give me a coin. And they produce a coin. And that immediately sets off this chain reaction of the authorities discrediting themselves. Now, if you were with us last week, you heard that one of the reasons there were money changers in the first place um, at, at the temple is because the religious uh, practices of the Jewish people required that they have money that didn't have any graven images on them. And the money of Rome had images of Caesar's face. And that was way against the law. And so by, by asking this question like, oh, show me, show me a denarii, a denarius. And the religious authorities are able to just hand one over. It shows that they have Rome's money with Rome's uh, sacrilegious face all over it. 
It shows that the authorities are literally bought into the system of empire and evil and domination. It shows that they do not practice what they preach, what they demand of other people, which is to rid themselves of these coins um, and to use a uh, different kind of money, but that they are bought into the system of domination and power. This is part of what makes them collaborators. And so Jesus then, after exposing them, says, all right, well, you know what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, there are a lot of people who want to interpret that as saying like, oh yeah, just pay your taxes. Don't worry about it. Separation of church and state. It's no big deal. Um, you can totally be bought into empire and also love Jesus. That's not what Jesus is doing here. <laughs> Jesus is so much cleverer and more complicated than that. Jesus is saying, all right, the image of Caesar is on this coin. Give this coin back to Caesar. Give him his own false money. Give him his own decrepit empire. Give him his own domination back. But give to God what is God's. And what is God's? All of creation. What is God's? That which bears the mark and image of God, which is all of humanity. Give God your whole self. Give God all of creation, which belongs to God. Divest yourself of this false money, of this false God, which is Caesar, who claims, by the way, to be God. Divest yourself. Stop being these false authorities. Stop collaborating with the evil empire. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to say, give this lie back to Caesar and give the truth of yourself, give the fullness of God's creation back to the goodness of God. Be a part of this. Come get swept up in this project of anti-empire. Now, they don't take that invitation, but in that moment, again, the crowd is reacting. The crowd is with Jesus. And so this trap that they thought could turn the crowd against Jesus has failed. So then they try again. They bring in the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife, and so they tried to just catch Jesus in a trick about the afterlife. So they said, okay, there's a Jewish law. It's called levirate marriage. Um, and, and levirate marriage was a, a law um, designed to help people who were vulnerable. What it said was if, if a woman is married and her husband dies before she has a male heir, um, there are stipulations for that. Now, pausing real quick, she would need a male heir in order to remain financially stable because marriage in that time was about property and progeny. It was about um, who, uh, who got to inherit um, material wealth. And so a widow with no uh, male heirs would be really financially vulnerable. And so this Leverite marriage law was designed to protect uh, women. And so if a woman's husband died before she had um, progeny that could protect her material well-being, the law required that uh, the, the deceased man's brother um, would marry her and give her a male heir. And so the Sadducees are like, okay, so we all know about this law. We all know about love-right marriage. Um, let's say a woman gets married, her husband dies, she marries a brother, um, and he doesn't give her any male ears either before he dies and on and on and on. So she's been married a bunch of times and, uh, and then she dies when they all get to heaven. Whose wife is she? Answer me that Jesus. So they're trying to trap Jesus in this, uh, this question about the afterlife. Now, Jesus from his own teachings, it's clear that Jesus believes in an afterlife, but it's also clear that Jesus doesn't teach a whole lot about it, that he's a lot more focused on how to live here and now than answering questions about heaven. And so he gives this, this answer that's sort of like, 
You don't even know what you're talking about. And in fact, he, he calls them out by being like, you don't even know the scriptures. You're supposed to be religious teachers. You don't even know what you're talking about. He gets real sassy, y'all. You should look it up. It's Mark chapter 12. It's good, to, it's good, good stuff. But Jesus gets real sassy with them and is like, you don't even know what you're talking about. And when we're in the afterlife, no one's going to be married, you weirdos. Like, that's not what it's about. So, uh, by the way, God is not concerned with this. God is a God of the living, not of the dead. And the crowd went wild again. Now, if we want to unpack that, that's a whole separate sermon. But just real briefly... A lot of people have tried to make sense of what God uh, intends for us after we die and what heaven or the afterlife looks like. And sometimes we find ourselves looking at this passage to try and make sense of it. We probably shouldn't. We're probably reading too much in because this is Jesus being clever and catty. It's not Jesus trying to outline life after death. But it could mean any number of things. It could mean that things um, like gender and sexuality change dramatically um, when, we, when we die and, and emerge in the afterlife. Uh, it could mean, because Jesus says that we'll be like, like the angels. So who knows? It could be that gender and sexuality and partnership are different. It could also mean that, um, that the body of God's people functions really differently. It could mean just that the system of marriage where property and progeny are the most important things falls apart. And that actually in heaven, we don't need to marry uh, women off to men in order for them to be stable and safe. We don't need male heirs in order for all to have enough that they, they need. So in any case that we take this, Jesus is challenging the thoughts and teachings of the Sadducees to say, you are trying to protect your own way of life. You are trying to protect the status quo, but God has an entirely different design for us. And that is what we need to be seeking. Not, uh, not speculating about what happens after we die, but actually focusing on how to live the life of the gospel here and now. Live for one another, provide for one another. And that leads straight into this next interaction, which is sometimes called the widow's might. Now, after Jesus calls out the scribes for their fancy robes, he calls them uh, people who devour widows' homes, which is really scathing and also is a direct relationship to some of their actual practices. Scribes, as employees of this collaborator class, they were the literate ones, so they were writing all kinds of things, including contracts. So they would write contracts and loans and things like that. And when somebody uh, defaulted on a loan, their home could be foreclosed on, essentially. Some things have not changed. And so Jesus is calling out these scribes and saying, you devour widows' homes, um, and just really rejecting the folks who have, have bought in and are benefiting from this system. And he's watching as rich people are putting tons of money into the coffers at the temple. And then this poor woman comes and tosses a couple of coins in, and he stops and he says, she put in all she had to live on. Now, a lot of people will, will preach this passage and say like, oh, this is Jesus praising the poor and like saying how beautiful it is that we give of ourselves. And that could be a very faithful interpretation that Jesus is saying, you rich folks who just toss money in like it's nothing, you aren't actually giving meaningfully of yourself. Whereas this person who gave what she had and, and gave and had to do so at great sacrifice, her gift is so much more meaningful. And that can stand as a passage interpretation of itself. 
But there's also something else here, another tone, uh, that when Jesus says she gives all she had to live on, it's also an indictment of the temple system that demands that of her, that says, oh, it's so well and good for you folks who are rich to offer up um, so casually and then demand so much sacrificial giving of the poor, that you are gatekeeping God's love, that rather than give out of abundance, as we all should be able to do, you are exploiting this woman until she is poor and then demanding all that she has left. And so Jesus, again, is just coming for these religious authorities saying, you are using the scriptures, you are using your position of power not to lead God's people, not to shepherd the Jewish people, not to cultivate faithfulness and holiness, but to exploit people, to be in service of the systems of domination, to be in league with Rome. This is not the way of God and this is not the way of Jewish faith. And so we see Jesus, again, just challenging, just challenging. Now this leads us to our reading today. It's called The Parable of the Wicked Tenants. And, uh, and I just want to kind of recap it. Jesus tells this story to the folks that are gathered, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And he says, listen, there was a vineyard. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and built it up and made it beautiful and then entrusted that to a couple of tenants and said, take care of my vineyard. And then when the season came, he, he sent somebody to the tenants um, to, to see their harvest. And instead of sending harvest and multitude back, these folks who were supposed to watch over this vineyard uh, seized the messenger and, uh, and beat him and sent him home empty. And then again, they, God, no, I'm interpreting too much already. Uh, the, the person who made the vineyard um, sent more messengers, sent more messengers over and over again. And every time the people who were supposed to be taking care of this vineyard, instead of sharing abundance of their, of their good work, would harm these messengers and send them away empty. And so the vineyard owner said, I will send my own son. I will send my own son to the vineyard to collect this harvest and to, to be in this abundance. And the tenants gathered together and said, this is the heir, let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. And they're trying to take the vineyard and all of its bounty and beauty for themselves, not for the benefit of all, not for the abundance of all, but to take it away from the vineyard owner. And so in this story, we have this really incredible parallel where Jesus, the son of God, is coming in and saying, listen, my God made all of this creation. I made all of this creation and, and I put it in your hands. God put it in your hands. And in particular, God put God's people into your hands, you the religious authorities, in order that you might care for them and cultivate them, that you might bring people into communion with God, that you might produce abundance of faith and life and joy and beauty. And you didn't do that. And every time I sent you messengers, prophets, you reject. And instead of receiving Jesus, Instead of receiving and building on that abundance, you plotted to murder him. And Jesus is saying to these authorities, I know you're going to kill me. I know what's happening here. But then Jesus says, you know what's going to happen after that? God's going to take all of this away from you. God's going to take that vineyard back because you are not being faithful. 
And that thing that you rejected, it's going to be the cornerstone of the church that's built. This thing that you don't understand, it's actually foundational. And it will be built up. And it will become something. And you won't be able to be a part of it if you're going to continue to act this way and to exploit people. And when they realized that they had told this parable against them, that's when they started to really freak out. And they were like, we got to arrest him. We got to arrest him. But they feared the crowd. So they left him and went away. This is Jesus on Tuesday and Holy Week, y'all. Coming for everybody. (laughs) And saying, hey, religious authorities, if you are not being faithful to the scriptures, if you are not being faithful to the gospel, to the good news, this will be taken away from you. Now, meanwhile, while all of this is going down, a scribe comes up to Jesus and says, what's, what's the greatest commandment? What's the first and most important commandment of them all? Now, in another text, this, is a, this story is told again in a different way, and it's a Pharisee, and someone's trying to challenge him. But this scribe is genuine in the Gospel of Mark. And he says, you know, what is the first? If you could summarize, what is the truth? And Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. But then Jesus adds a second one. He says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. This is Jesus being peak Jewish, by the way. Um, the first commandment that he, that he picks is one that is so sacred that people have it written everywhere, including on little scrolls that they attach to their bodies to remind them um, to love God with their wholeness. And so Jesus is saying, that is, that is the first. And there's a second. And he takes that second, not out of thin air, but out of Leviticus, everyone's favorite book, as I uh, have come to learn. Jesus is quoting Leviticus, y'all. Jesus doesn't throw Leviticus out, but Jesus makes a choice about what in Leviticus is truly important. He elevates a verse from Leviticus to be the second most important verse in the entire scriptures. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in this way, we see Jesus's hermeneutic. Now, that's a big seminary word, um, academic word that we've used a couple of times at Zao. And what it means is the set of choices through which you make interpretations about belief and about scriptures in particular. So hermeneutic is just the lens through which we read our holy scriptures and make determinations about what is true. We see through these debates that the hermeneutic of the authorities of Jesus's day is one of domination, collaboration, and power over, that they are invested in the status quo, that they are invested in challenging Jesus and bringing him down, and along with him, all the people who are gathered with him. But we see Jesus's hermeneutic is different. Jesus prioritizes love of God and love of neighbor as self, that relationship, that beautiful relationship, God to self, self to other, self to self, All of that is the lens through which Jesus makes determinations of truth. If on Sunday, Jesus is saying, hey, I see your military, but what's more powerful is the people. If on Monday, Jesus says, hey, I see your system of temple domination, where you are exploiting folks saying the only way to be holy is to pay you money. Jesus challenges that by turning that upside down and saying it will not stand. 
This is a house of prayer. There is a different way to be holy. Then, now on Tuesday, we see Jesus saying, you're trying to tell us what we believe, but you're wrong. You've been abusing the scriptures. You've been abusing the faith. And I'm here to set you straight, that there is a way to be faithful, that there is a way to think theologically, to embrace these scriptures that is holy and true and good and consistent with God's intention for us that you have twisted and distorted and manipulated the faith for your own ends, and that's wrong. And we reject your bad theology. And instead, we preach a theology of joy and justice and liberation that is true to the gospel. We don't have to go outside of the scriptures to find this. This is the heart of the scriptures, and you're the ones who have gotten it wrong. And so we see in Jesus this this beautiful uh, example of what it means not to say, well, faith has been co-opted, let's throw faith out the window. But to say faith has been co-opted, let us speak real truth. Let us dig into our tradition and find where the truth lives because that is the most powerful way that we can challenge these systems of power and domination, collaboration and evil, is by claiming our faith, the fullness of it, and exposing the falseness of the teachings of those around us. Now, interestingly, when Jesus offers this to the scribe who asked, who came in earnestness and said, what is the most important? And Jesus said, love God, love neighbor as self. The scribe is moved. The scribe says, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart, with all understanding, with all strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself This is so much more important than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's wild because the scribe who has so much to lose if the system falls sees the truth and he is moved to join the people and to say, you are right. This system of whole burnt sacrifice is not important when it's compared to the truth that you have just named. This system of domination falls apart in the face of what you have just named. And he realizes this and he claims it out loud. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God. There's so much in that because there's a a claim of closeness like, ooh, you're getting real close here, but not quite there yet. And the gap, I believe, is in doing is in saying it is one thing to believe and to claim and is another to do and act and live. So scribe, divest yourself. Become a person of the living. Join the folks in the streets with the hosannas and the palm branches. Scripture says, and after that, no one dared ask him any question. There is so much contained in Tuesday. And it shows that there are ways, faithful ways, that we can use our own faith to challenge the bad theology and the bad teachings that are are supporting the status quo, that actually the most powerful way to break down those systems is not to abandon our faith. Jesus didn't abandon his Jewishness. Jesus embraced it extra to say these are the Jewish people and we challenge the authorities that have abandoned their Jewishness truly to, to manipulate the faith into supporting domination and empire. That we as faithful people are required to get to the core of our faith and claim it, preach it, challenge the world with it. Now, if that feels impossible, 
Know that Jesus feels the weight of this ask. That morning, as they were passing a fig tree, this fig tree had withered. There's a whole beautiful metaphor, a thread through Mark about the fig tree as the temple. And Jesus says some really weird stuff. Looking at this this fig tree that has withered, he says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe what I say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe what you have received, and it will be yours. Now, that seems like a really weird thing to say, especially because Jesus isn't actually picking up mountains and throwing them into the sea. But it's a metaphor. The mountain is Mount Zion on which the temple is built. Jesus is saying, this can be overthrown. We can imagine a different way. And if you ask and believe, it will be given to you. You can be a part of this. You can join in toppling these systems of domination and empire. And you only need to claim your faith and your belief truly in order to do it. Will you join me in prayer? God of power and might, God of stillness and slowness, God of creative resistance, we pray that you would inspire in us our own true belief, that you would give us everything that we need in order to follow you into the temple overturning tables, challenging harmful ideas, that those collaborators and the systems of domination would not have the final say on who you are and what you teach, that they would not interpret the scriptures for us, but that we would be led by you through the lens of loving you and loving one another as ourselves. And through that, we would receive all that we ask for in prayer, in faithfulness, in the belief of our hearts that you will make all things right one day. Amen.